Well, we are uh, concluding our series this uh, this week. This is the final series in this uh, this collection of conversations we've been having about the declarations. I've called it the the big ideas. What does the church have to say? Uh, what what does Christianity have to say to the world about the things that it believes? And and um, if you weren't here, uh, uh, you can you can go and check these out online. They're on the church website, so you can go listen to them. But we began by talking about truth, and the idea of truth is that is that we believe that that there is a God out there, okay, that there's a God, and the reason we don't see him is because we have been cut off from God, that that God is obscured by our sins and the sins of the people around us, that that collectively the things that we've done wrong and the things that other people have done uh, to us have disconnected us from God. So we talked about that, that there is a God, we just don't see him. So truth is that is that we know something about God, even though we don't see him. But we also talked about grace and grace is the idea that while we have been disconnected from God, God has acted to reconnect us to him. That that despite what our feelings may tell us or what our friends may say to us or or uh, the 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 way some preacher told it to us once upon a time, God doesn't hate us. And in fact, God has already acted to reconnect us to himself. So that was uh, uh, truth and grace. We, we looked at the cross, which is, and there's a, we, we saw there's all kinds of ways that scripture uses to describe what happened on the cross, how it was that Jesus reconnected us to, to, to God. But then we looked at the, the kingdom of God, which is this idea that, that while God has acted to save us, that doesn't mean God is perfectly okay with all the things that are wrong with the world. When there's, when there's injustice and, and cruelty and indifference and poverty and hatred and suffering, God is not indifferent to that, in that God is actually uh, unfolding a plan to deal with everything that is wrong with the world. And God is going to, to put the world back under his authority, and that will be the kingdom of God. And there won't be these things that are so uh, troublesome in the meantime. So that's the kingdom of God. And then last week... We, we, we got to the idea that the church's role is to proclaim the nearness of the kingdom of God. We, we share, and we saw, for those of us who can't stand the idea of evangelism, we saw Jesus describes how he thinks, how he, how he knows that evangelism should be done. So if you've got any questions, again, let me uh, reassure you, you can go listen to those online. But that's where we got to so far. We talked about truth and grace the kingdom of God, and the mission of the church. And now we're left with one big question that I want to deal with today, which is, okay, but, but why, why the church? Why us? Why, why can't we do all that as individuals? Why do we come together on Sunday mornings? Why do we have the gathering of the church? This is the most visible thing we do. People who aren't believers, they drive by and they see this green building sitting here, and they wonder, well, why? Why do you guys exist? Why aren't you just doing this stuff one on one by one? So we're going to talk today about the church. Why do Christians exist in community? Why do we belong to churches? We saw last week we, we actually had people join our church. Why did they do that and not just continue to be Christians out on their own? Why do we do that? We're going to be talking about that today. The The, the, the real question is, why do Christians work in community? If you were lost on a desert island, you would still be part of the church. 
um, you would you, hopefully you would view yourself that way, but certainly people uh, elsewhere would see, uh, and we often do pray for people who are isolated, people who are in a hospital alone or things like that. We, we view them as part of this body belong to. So why do we do that? Well, the answer comes from our reading today in Acts. So we're going to be looking at this reading from Acts. But if you have to get up in the middle, I'm going to cut to the chase and tell you the, the clue right away. The answer is that last week we talked about proclaiming the kingdom of God. We talked about how the, the role of the church is to go out and tell people. Everybody has, everybody has uh, uh, the right to hear that God doesn't hate them. Everybody has a right to hear about the kingdom of God. But the church is where we don't simply talk about it, we do it. The church is the place where our proclamation turns into demonstration. We quit talking about the kingdom of God and begin demonstrating the kingdom of God. So people who who are out in the world, they hear our message and they say, well, I don't know about that. Um, If they come to the church and they don't see anything that matches what they heard, then they say, that was just a bunch of bunk. But if what they see when they come to the church matches up with what they heard when the kingdom of God was proclaimed to them, then they say, maybe there's something to that. So the purpose of the church, the reason we live in community, is because we are the demonstration. Uh, Theologians call us the provisional demonstration. This is not what heaven's going to be like. But it's as close as you'll get on earth. The church is as close as you'll get on earth to what God's intention is for the kingdom of heaven ultimately. So let's go ahead and look at this passage. Um, I included the tail end of chapter five because I've I've heard the passage from chapter six preached before. And and it seems to me that if you don't read it in the context of chapter five, you miss part of the, the, the lesson. So I went back just a little bit into chapter five and picked up some of that. So what's going on here? Uh, this is this is the early church. Jesus has ascended to heaven way back in chapter one. And the church is kind of navigating what it means to be church uh, in the in the days after Jesus returns to heaven. So they uh, they go to the temple and they preach there. So the temple is the biggest public space in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on a hill or a bunch of hills now. Um, and they go to Jerusalem and the temple has this big, flat, wide open area where people assemble and they preach there. Uh, you might go to uh, to uh, you know a park or to a library uh, to to Walmart or something like that. A big flat open space where you could preach to people. That's what they're doing. Well, unfortunately, there's a religion there, and uh, increasingly it's becoming clear that that the Jewish religion and the Christian religion are uh, beginning to part ways. The people who are preaching there still think of themselves as Jews, but the people whose temple it is are saying, "What are you doing here?" You're, you're talking about things we don't want to do. So when they heard about when they heard about uh, the the apostles preaching there, they arrested them. And if you read chapter five, what happens is that night after they'd been arrested, uh, uh, an angel breaks them out of jail and says, "Go back tomorrow and preach in the same spot you were preaching today, because this will be fun." And <laughs> and so they go there, and they're preaching out there at the temple courts. Meanwhile, the the, the ruling authorities have assembled the entire council. It's 70 people. And so it took, it took a while for them to get together. But they've been assembled now and they're ready to judge this problem that keeps occurring. These, these apostles keep showing up and talking about Jesus. And the whole frustration is, look, we killed that guy a couple of months ago and these people will not quit 
babbling about Jesus. So we have to do something about that. So that's the problem. And they say, okay, bring him up from the prison and we'll judge him. And the word comes, they're not in the prison. And then they're still kind of grappling with that. And somebody says, oh, by the way, they're out in the courts preaching again. So, so they bring them in. Okay. And they're, they're hot. They're ready to kill him. I mean, if you go back and read chapter, chapter five, it says, we can solve this problem. Okay. We can, we can just kill him and that'll be an end to it. So instead, cooler heads prevail. Cooler heads say, you know, let's not kill them. You know, let's just let them do their crazy thing and they'll fade out eventually. So it may seem a little uh, harsh that we are introduced to this story. It says they called in the apostles and had them flogged, but the alternative was a death penalty. So actually they got off easy and they were told, just knock it off with the preaching about Jesus. Just stop that stuff. We don't like doing this. We don't like having you in here. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And as they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor on account of the name. So they're happy. They actually get to get beat up for Jesus. And every day in the temple and at home, they obeyed the instructions they'd been given. No, they didn't. They did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. So that is the context we're coming into. The church is going through this period. They're being challenged. They're being told, quit preaching about Jesus. They're suffering for it. And then the writer stops and tells us about some little quarrel over food. Here, there's all this exciting stuff going on, you know, drama and high intrigue. And suddenly we get this story about food. He says in chapter six, now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. The Hellenists are part of the Greek speaking world. Um, in the Roman Empire, there was two major languages. There was uh, uh, the from Italy to the West, there were people who spoke Latin. And that's what we think of. You go see inscriptions on buildings and so forth. They're written in Latin. But in the eastern half of the Mediterranean, everybody spoke Greek. So the word for Greek is Hel- Hellenic or Hellenist or something. Anyway, the Hellenists are the people who speak Greek. And so everybody from from the outlying areas, okay, whether you were from Turkey or from Egypt, um, from any part of the Eastern Roman Empire, they spoke Greek. And when they came to Jerusalem, they continued to speak Greek or they spoke Aramaic with a bad accent or something. So their normal language was was Greek. And they've joined this church. Somehow they've heard these things. They've seen the miracles and they say, all right, I'm in. But they feel like they're not getting a fair deal because the Hebrews, the people who've been kind of in on this from the beginning, are saying, um, you know, we love you and we're glad you're part of us, but they're not feeding the widows equally. Now, why, why do you need to feed widows? Because in those days they didn't have Social Security and they didn't have IRAs and they didn't have all the things we take for granted today. Um, uh, if you were a widow, uh, your husband has died, you're out of luck. Because unless you've got family to take care of you, you're going to starve. And so what the church was doing was saying, it's not right that the widows starve, so let's feed them. But apparently there was a um, disparate impact that the the Hellenists were, were feeling that their widows were not being fed the way that the Hebrew widows were being fed. So that's the controversy. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it's not right that we neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. In the past, whenever I've read that, I've always kind of thought, well, that's kind of arrogant. You know, my job in the church is more important than yours. And that's why it's important to remember, what is their job? Their job is going out and getting beat up. 
Okay, so they're saying it's not right. We should give up the fun and joy of being um, uh, of suffering for the name of Jesus in order to wait on tables. They're not being arrogant. They're saying we've got a higher calling. Okay, and it's not that we enjoy it, but it's important. So they say it's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing full of spirit and, and, and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task. Now, notice they don't say, uh, select the people you like, the people who sit near you in church. They don't say, select the people who've got the most presidential hair. Um, <laughs> they don't say anything like that. They say, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom. They've got to have a good reputation. They've got to be blessed by the spirit and be wise. Okay, so they do. They select these guys, Stephen, um, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, an Antioch, uh, proselyte of Antioch. Proselyte means a new, a new, uh, someone who's in the process of becoming a Jew. So he was actually going through the process of becoming a Jew and uh, became a Christian instead. So they had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And then he goes on. He says, the word of God continued to spread. Uh, the problem is solved. Apparently, the widows from this point on were getting their proper share of food, and everybody's happy. So uh, the the word of God continues to spread. The number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and many, great many priests became obedient to the faith. So, what has happened here is that the problem is solved. Uh, we don't know we don't know how they did it. We know they did though because the writer goes on to tell us about some of them, uh, Philip and Stephen occupy the next couple of chapters of this book talking about what happened to them so we know he and he doesn't tell us how they divided up the food properly among the widows what has actually happened is they solved that problem and they became recognized as leaders in the church so uh, i'll talk more about that in a minute but but let me just kind of back up a minute and say what is this what does this show us i think it shows us two two easy things and one really important thing so i want to do the two easy things first the, the easy thing it shows us is that the church is going to have problems, okay? Not all the problems the church faces are going to be outside. You're not always going to be facing a persecution out in the world, but that doesn't mean it's always going to be perfect inside the church. And since most of us aren't getting beat up outside, uh, you may say, well, how come the church is a mess? The answer is because the world is a mess. And yes, the church is going to go on being a mess until Jesus comes back. So the first thing is, don't be surprised. The early church was a mess. Our church is going to be a mess too. But the mess can be fixed. Okay? So the second thing it teaches us is that there's a way to complain about the mess in your church that is biblical. Okay? And the answer is you can't just whisper to your little cabal of friends about how rotten the leaders of your church are. Okay? That's not what they do. What they do is they bring the problem to the attention of the leaders they assume that the leaders would like to fix real problems. So they go to the leaders. We don't know the details, but the leaders are the ones who do this. It says the 12, the 12 addressed this. So how do we do it? We don't know. We only know that it did come to the attention of the leaders. So um, don't, don't go whispering problems to people who won't do anything about it. Instead, take your problem to the leaders. If your leaders are really terrible people like me, in, in the Methodist church... <laughs> We have got something to solve that problem, too. You can go to the SPR. We have something here called the Staff Parish Relations Committee. Who, who's on that committee? Hold, raise, raise your hand. 
Okay, look around. Those people, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Okay, look around. Those are the people that if you're afraid because Luke will bite your head off, go to them and say, did you know our widows aren't getting fed? And they will bring it to me or they'll bring it to the, the um, lay leaders in the church. So we have a process for dealing this because we know there's going to be problems in the church. But assume that the leaders are just ignorant, that they don't realize that this is a problem. Assume goodwill on the part of your leaders. Think about this. Okay, the 12. Who are the 12? The 12 are the people who followed Jesus around for three years. They got daily coaching in how to be a good Christian. And they made mistakes. Okay, well, guess what? I'm going to, too. Okay, and so is everybody on council. We're going to make mistakes because we didn't even get three, three years of coaching by Jesus about how to do it right. Okay, if they make mistakes, trust me, we're going to, too. So those are the two easy things. The two easy things are expect problems and then expect your leaders will fix them if you just bring them to their attention. Now, what does that leave? What I talked about before, I said the reason that we have church and community is because this is where we demonstrate the things we talk about the kingdom of God. We tell people the kingdom of God has come near and they say, well, how do I know that's true? We invite them to church to see it for themselves. Okay. We say in the world, it's every man for himself. Okay. If you're a poor widow, good luck. If you're in an area where you don't have friends, too bad. You're going to starve. But in the church, we say everybody should have their needs met. So the kingdom of God is the place where we say, you deserve fairness. We have life and community. The thing is, life and community is a better deal. You don't have to believe in God at all. You could be, you could be driving by, see this church, and say, I don't know what those people are up to, but you understand at a deep level that community is better than not community. Because it really doesn't matter how good this church is. If we, if we are the most awesome church in town, people are still going to get sick. People are still going to have their, their marriages fall apart. People are still going to lose their job. People are still going to have problems. But in community, what the church can do is say, you don't have to go through that together. The church can be the place where when your life falls apart at two in the morning, you can actually phone somebody and say, can you come over? I need somebody to talk to. And the church is a place where people will do that. That's what we're called to be. We can't stop these problems. We can't make every marriage work out. We can't keep cancer at bay. What we can do is ensure that when those things happen, people don't have to go through it alone. Nobody has to go to the hospital alone. Nobody has to sit in the ER alone. Nobody has to go to the divorce court alone. That's what the church is called to be, is to be community. Amen. Now, one last thought. It's not just a place for mutual support and encouragement. As important as that is, that is absolutely important. But it's not just that. It's also a place where people's gifts are recognized. Now, here's, here's what I mean by that. If you go back to chapter 1 of Acts, the apostles, there's 11. It, doesn't, it says here we read about the 12. At that point, there was only 11. Jesus had an inner circle of 12, 12 disciples, one of whom betrayed him, Judas. You've heard about Judas. Judas hanged himself. Okay, So now instead of 12, 
there's 11. And the apostles are saying, we need to replace him because 12 is a good number. We know it's a good number because Jesus picked it. So they say, okay, we're going to pick somebody. And they say this, they say, one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time the Lord went in and out from among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. They say, we need somebody who's been part of the group all along. He wasn't in that inner circle, but he's been there since the day Jesus got baptized by John, all three years of his ministry, up to the date when he was crucified, and then who saw him when he was raised. They said, that's the requirement to be a leader in the church. And here in chapter 6, they change the requirement. They say, you don't have to have been a member of the church for three years. You could have just joined last month, and you can still be a member of the church. You don't have to be a Galilean. You don't have to speak Hebrew. You can speak Greek, and you can still be a leader in the church. They understand for the first time that the church is not just that inner circle of Jesus' close followers, that the church can be led by anyone who has the right gifts. So they say to the, they say to the crowd or to the, the disciples, they say, pick people who are of good standing and who are wise and full of the Spirit. That's the only requirements. You don't have to have been with Jesus all of the last three years. You could have just joined the church a month ago. And they say, you can now be a leader in the church. And as we look at the next couple of chapters, we see they do. Philip goes on. He gets to be, get beat up by, uh, um, sorry, uh, Stephen gets to get beat up by Jesus uh, by, uh, for the sake of Jesus. And um, he actually is martyred. He's the first martyr. Uh, Philip goes on. He baptizes people. He spreads the church to Africa. So we know that these leaders have a role in the church that extends beyond table ministry. So how do we apply this? The church is the exhibition of the kingdom of God. It's where people who hear our story out in the world can come and see, do we believe it? Do we believe it ourselves? Do we act like it? Do our widows get fed? Or do we come up with rules where we say, you know, the ones who speak the right language or who've been part of the church long enough, the ones who've got a sufficient a network of friends and acquaintances, yes, they get fed. But other people with other problems... No, not necessarily. The church has to be a place where everybody's widow gets fed, where whatever your problem is, whatever hurt you have, it may not get met. You may not, you may, you, we may not be able to fix what's wrong. Okay, You may have been wounded by the world in a way that only Jesus can fix you. Okay, Only Jesus can heal you. But this is a place where you can at least have companionship, where people will hear you and understand you, and sit with you. The other thing is it's a church where people have their gifts recognized. And if you have great gifts and you haven't been a member of the church for a long time, you're still, you're still able to serve. If you have great gifts and you have, you're from a different race, you're from a different gender, that you are still recognized and able to serve in the church. The reason it matters is because people can hear all kinds of stuff. People will hear the story about Jesus out in the world. They'll hear about truth and grace. They'll hear about the kingdom of God. But what matters is can they come to a church like this and see it exhibited for them? Let's be that church. Thanks be to God. Amen.